you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast. It's always a pleasure to study the Word of God together. Rabbi Dove Lippman, how are you, my friend? Thank God. So good to be talking with you. Wonderful. I do want to ask you at the beginning of this, as we get into this year's second Torah portion, what has been your motivation? What has been your interest level in joining together and doing this podcast? I think that it's critical that people from different faiths that, that share a belief system, and even if we disagree at times about certain theology, uh, come together and study the Word of God. And I also feel that it's a great opportunity uh, for the two of us together uh, to share some insights and share some wisdom and sh- share some food for thought for people from both the Christian and the Jewish faith to come together and be part of the remarkable, unifying effort, which is studying the weekly portion. Amen. Amen. It's a beautiful gift to get to study the Word of the Lord. And so in this new year, we have a weekly Torah portion that breaks down the Torah into weekly readings. And this one is called the Parashat Noach, the name for Noah. And it comes from Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and it goes through chapter 11, verse 32. And we had the huge portion at the beginning, the first five and a half chapters there. And now we get to a very important story. And we have to look back at Genesis 6-6 when we start this portion. And it says, The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Rabbi, as we talked about on the last podcast, what a sad statement that God is sad as a heavenly father, that his children have run so far from him. And there's no doubt that it's a, it's certainly a sad verse, and it's also a complicated verse to understand exactly what that means as we put into perspective God's being beyond time and God being perfect, not God, God not making mistakes. And uh, certainly it's at the very least giving us the emotions that a human being would feel were a human being to be going through this experience, but it also definitely shows us the pain that God has, as it were, over our failures. You're right. When we talk about the concept of omniscience, God is not surprised by our sin, but he is saddened by our sin. And so because of this, God chooses to restart the human race. And he does that through the family of Noah. And verse 8 of chapter 6, last week's final verse, says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this was a man who was godly, who walked with God and He's called, in verse 9, a righteous man, blameless in his time, that he walked with God, and he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God. And so the Lord has given Noah the assignment, starting in verse 14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. And he gives him the instructions, how large it's going to be, and to cover it with pitch or tar to make it watertight. And then at the end of chapter 6, very important verse, Noah did 
according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And Rabbi, would it be possible for men of God today to be able to finish their life and say they did everything that God commanded them to do? And let's remember, I'll add to your question for a moment and say, God gave him a very difficult task over here. This is not uh, simple. You start figuring out these measurements, certainly at that time, and Noah dedicates himself to it. And yes, that's certainly the goal, is that a person can uh, fulfill their life. And, and I, you know, I don't know that we're expected to have been perfect. But you want to be able to correct those flaws. Even Noah himself, with all the praises that God gives to him, we're going to see in the story things that happen where he's not perfect. But on a, on a day-to-day basis, maybe hour-to-hour basis, we want to be able to ask ourselves, are we doing what God asks of us? And uh, we might fail at times. And then there's the process of atonement. But certainly a tremendous praise over here for Noah. And certainly that Noah is an example and a model of fulfilling the word of God. And as you say, it's supposed to be 450 feet long, 45 feet high, 75 feet in in breadth. And so it's a very large boat and he's supposed to have a certain number of windows and a deck and a second deck and a third deck because verse 17, the Lord said, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh and which is the breath of life from under heaven. And then in verse 18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter your ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives. So eight people, four couples will repopulate the earth. And as you said, this was a huge assignment. Over 100 years, it took Noah to build the ark because the Lord said it was going to bring a flood. And I'll remind all of our listeners, it had never rained before this moment. The Lord had watered the plants of the earth through the dew and the mist. It had never rained. So imagine the moments where for a hundred years, people see Noah and his family working on this big, huge boat. And they said, what are you building? And he said, an ark. And they say, what's an ark? And he said, it's a boat. Why do you need a boat? Because it's going to rain. And they said, what's rain? Think about the number of people who had the chance to listen to Noah's testimony of faithfulness and turn their hearts to the Lord. And I can only imagine that they were ridiculing him, criticizing him, and calling him a fool for trusting God all those years. And also it shows God's patience, that God wants the people to repent. God wants the people to come back, and he gives them uh, this opportunity. And the sad thing is that they didn't take advantage of that. But uh, certainly the opportunity was there. And yes, there's no doubt you can imagine the scorn and the mocking. Noah was given the instruction to take animals. And we always say two by two is sort of the kid's story of Noah. But actually, two of every kind of animal. But for food and for sacrificing, he was supposed to bring seven pairs of each kind of clean animal. And so later on in the Torah, when you read the book of Leviticus, especially Leviticus 11, you begin to understand the clean and unclean animals. But it wasn't as simple as two by two. He had to make a process and a procedure to load the ark with all these pairs of animals so that the Lord would repopulate the earth with people and animals after the flood. And that's also part of the miracle. I mean, you talk about rounding up uh, at the minimum two of each species and coming to the ark. And uh, it's really, uh, you know, we talk about the miracle of Noah surviving and, and, and God's desire to rebuild the land, the earth. Uh, that's certainly a great example of that as well, is the fact that all these animals came to him, that he had the ability to feed them, he had the capacity to take care of them. That's also part of the miracle. 
So we are in now Genesis chapter 7, verse 12. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And then chapter 7 says, The flood came upon the earth for 40 days. Verse 17, Water prevailed greatly upon the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. And all the flesh that moved on the earth perished, verse 21 says. Verse 23, The Lord blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the earth. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, says the last verse of chapter 7. So, yes, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but the amount of water and the flooding had to subside after all that. So, 150 days the water was on the earth. And so, this is months of trusting God, months of living in the ark and trusting God that his covenant of protection would be true and would come to pass. And what do you think the emotions were of the people who rejected God and rejected the testimony of Noah after all those years of seeing Noah's faithfulness and the people saying you're a fool and there is no God and there is no rain coming, the people that had to deal with their own sinfulness and their own disobedience to the Lord, that had to be a not only, of course, physically scary, but an emotionally and spiritually depressing when their unfaithfulness was revealed. We have an expression called Kinei Yom Hadin. Behold, this is the day of judgment. We actually say that on Rosh Hashanah. The Hine Yom Hadin, this idea that there can be a, a judgment that comes, is something which doesn't only have to happen uh, after 120 years, as we say, when a person passes away. It's something which can happen in this world. And uh, this is one of those moments for them where all of a sudden, you know, their entire belief system, their entire theory of how they saw the world and how they saw God and how they saw uh, everything around them was turned on its head in one split moment. It was this uh, epiphany moment where they realized how they failed. And that was their day of judgment. As we get into Genesis chapter eight, verse one, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. The rain from the sky was restrained. The water receded steadily, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. And at the end of the, it says verse 4, it says, In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat, which a lot of people think might be in the modern country of Turkey. And then it says, and the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. On the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. And so at the end of 40 days, he sent out a raven and it flew and came back. And then he sent out a dove to see if the water had abated, but the dove found no resting place. So he waited another seven days and again sent out a dove and the dove picked an olive leaf and brought it back. And so it says in verse 13, at the 601st year, on the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. So Noah removed the covering of the ark and the ground was dried up. And so by one calculation, Rabbi, this is 377 days after they entered the ark, if you add up all these time periods. So we're talking over 12 months of trusting God and believing that he would keep his covenant. It's a long time, and you have to imagine while they're in the ark, uh, let's remember two things. First of all, they are saved uh, because of their kindness. 
Uh, earlier in the portion, it described how the people were filled with robbery and corruption and the land was uh, not a place of spirituality. How does Noah and his family, how do they merit to survive? It's because of their kindness. They're taking care of all these animals uh, in the ark. And you have to, I think to myself, what thoughts were going through their mind? What kind of world are they going to come out to afterwards? Uh, certainly they're filled with belief and hope, but there has to be tremendous anxiety as well. And like you said, it was a very long period of time. It wasn't, uh, people always talk about the 40 days and 40 nights, but till they actually came out of the ark, it's even much later. And to just visualize for a moment that scene, he comes out and everything is destroyed. And the truth is that does on a certain level set the stage for what happens after he comes out and gives us some level of understanding uh, of his behavior uh, when they came out of the ark. I'm going to make one comment about science, and then I'm going to ask you for a symbolism question. But I believe that the entirety of the earth was affected by this flood. And I believe all the fossil records and all the carbon dating system and all those things that try to make the earth appear, so say some unbelieving scientist, that the earth is billions and billions of years old. I don't believe that because I don't think the Bible teaches that. And I think all of that was affected by the flood. And things that are not as old appear much older because of the just the, the whole turmoil of the flood and how it affected everything on the earth. That's my scientific opinion. Now I'm going to give you a question, Rabbi. What is the symbolism of the dove and the olive leaf? Why did the Lord use those specific elements in this story? There are a lot of discussions in the commentaries about what that's all about and why are we all of a sudden suddenly seeing this, these, you know, there's been no discussion about a dove in the past and no discussion about an olive uh, leaf in the past either. So how does that work? And there are different answers uh, that are given in terms of what it's meaning. The olive in Judaism has always represented something which uh, can be crushed and crushed and crushed in order to get the most beautiful drips of oil to come from. And there's a symbolism there of, yes, very horrible things have happened, but Noah just recognized that there are good things to come. There's better things that are coming the same exact way uh, that we deal with an olive tree or an olives that we harvest. So that's one uh, explanation that's given. I'm wondering if you have a thought that comes to mind about that. Well, I think that's very accurate and in agreement with Christian theology that the olive is a representation of the blessing of the Lord, that he gives it to us in, in agriculture. As you say, it is crushed repeatedly. In fact, Christians talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, the place that Jesus went to before he was crucified. It's the Garden of the Olive Press. That's what Gatshmanim means. And so olive is very important and very symbolic. Also, you would anoint the head of kings with olive oil. So the idea of new life and sacrifice and anointing and blessing, I think all of that is applicable to the olive. And I think it's very important symbolically that that's the plant that God had this dove, which I think represents peace and new life, find after this destruction of the sinfulness of the world. And I think it's very important to recognize Genesis 8 verse 20 coming out of the ark after 12 months of wondering if there would be another life and what the world would be like. Genesis 8 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord, took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. So the first action he takes is an action of sacrifice and worship. And that's uh, important because you might think that Noah comes out, he's the man, he's the one who survived, uh, that there would be tremendous ego uh, involved and maybe even a 
forgetting of the Lord. Very often, you know, there's a story of a fellow who uh, was driving on his motorcycle and his motorcycle went off a cliff. And as he was in the air, he said, Lord, uh, if you save me, I'll check myself into rabbinic school. And he gets saved and he goes the next day to rabbinic school and he's there for uh, about, about three hours. And then he says, okay, time to go. And they said, what's going on? And he said, I just promised that I'd go to rabbinic school. I didn't say I'm going to stay there. We very quickly uh, forget the gifts that God gives to us. And in this example where we see Noah has his first act giving uh, credit and praise to God, a very powerful message about the importance of not forgetting so quickly about the wonderful things that God does for us. And how does the Lord respond to the sacrifice? Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So the Lord makes a promise that he's not going to do this again and he is well pleased with the sacrifice because this is a sacrifice of action before it was a sacrifice of heart that Noah had to believe the Lord then the action of building the ark then it was the heart again of trusting God all through this 377 days and now it's an action again so I believe a person of God a man or woman who loves the Lord and walks obediently with the Lord their sacrifice and their worship looks like heart and actions we have to remember, and you, you captured it, Pastor, and how you said it, the sacrifice doesn't give anything to God. He doesn't need to smell the sweet smell. He doesn't need the food. But it's the act of sacrifice, of giving up something that you have in order to give that thanks, and him recognizing that you feel that thanks, and you understand what he's giving to you. That's what provides that, so to speak, satisfaction. So now we get to Genesis chapter 9. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is an exact quote from Genesis 1 verse 28 that was given to Adam and Eve. So we really are starting all over again. It's really uh, a whole new world. And, and by the way, you mentioned about all of the scientific th things that may have happened. We also agree to that, that there's all kinds of changes that could have happened as a result. You'll see later with the rainbow that God talks about how he won't change the course of nature so much anymore, which means that a lot of change took place. And yes, this is a brand new, fresh start, uh, literally uh, starting over again from where the story began. And we have to see what opportunity the people take, uh, how they act on this opportunity that God has given to them. The value of human life is reinforced by the Lord in Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So some people use this as a justification for capital punishment, that the value of life is so important that if you take a life willfully, murder someone else, your life can be taken from you. And that capital punishment idea is often used as a biblical concept here from Chapter 9 of Genesis. I'll tell you another uh, hot current topic that's viewed uh, from our perspective in this verse, and that is actually the issue of abortion. Because if you translate the verse literally, it's if you shed the blood of man in man. Uh, what's the blood of man in man? And we understand that to be a reference to a fetus. There are some differences in the theology between Christianity and Judaism in terms of some of the rules and regulations, but the general concept that we are against uh, abortion and is, from our perspective, very much uh, captured in this verse. Very well said. In Genesis 9, verse 
8 to Noah and his sons. And then he said in verse 9, Behold, I do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So this is called the covenant that God makes, that he will never again destroy the earth, it says in verse 11. And he's going to make a sign. And the sign is what we call the rainbow. I will set my bow in the cloud. It will be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth, the Lord says in verse 13. And when you see the cloud, it's to remind us, It says, I will also remember in verse 15, as if the Lord could forget, which he cannot. But when the bow is in the cloud, verse 16, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature on the earth. And so a bow is part of the bow and arrow. It's part of a weapon used for war. And the Lord says, I'm going to take my weapon away. I'm going to take this opportunity to destroy the earth. I will never do it again. And so the beautiful rainbow which people say well it's just refraction of the light and all the you know spectrum of light and all that yes the science points to the creator but the creator says that's going to be my sign that i will never again judge the earth in this way exactly we're not saying that the concept didn't exist scientifically but god is saying that's the sign and there's also many commentaries that talk about what is the exact symbolism of the rainbow, and you really, Pastor, just referenced it in saying the bow, which is a a weapon of war, but now it's turned backwards. It was always a sign in war of ending battle to turn the bow backwards, and that's exactly what God is doing, so to speak. When we see the rainbow, it's facing the opposite direction. He's not shooting towards us anymore, but he's saying, I'm no longer going to punish you in this way. So we see a beautiful story of God's patience with the people then unfortunately the judgment of the Lord upon the sinfulness of disobedient people. We see the faithfulness of Noah, the Lord creating a covenant with Noah and moving forward. And so it says in verse 18 of Genesis 9, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan or Canaan, which the land of Israel becomes known as the land of Canaan because this man owns the territory. And then it says, verse 19, these were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was populated. So really we have started over as a human race. And sadly, Rabbi, the scene changes. Chapter 9, verse 20, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And so is this sinfulness? Is this a disobedience? Is this some sort of immorality? But we've got the problems of the sinfulness of man, even as we have restarted the generations of the human race. Absolutely. Uh, We've seen those frailties already in the first uh, portion in Genesis, and it's a theme that we're going to see throughout the Bible over and over again. We're going to see this theme of of God giving the people opportunity and the people not living up to that opportunity, and people failing. And then the question is, how do I do with those failures? And even the greatest of people, we've talked before about Noah and his righteousness, and even this great man makes mistakes and made bad decisions and actually has to suffer some consequences for it. It says at the end of chapter 9, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. 
and let Canaan be his servant. So for our people who are tracking the Hebrew, the Semites or the Semitic people, those are the Jewish people. There are others as well that qualify as Semites. But if you learn the term anti-Semitism or hatred of the Jews, Shem, which is the Hebrew word for name, blessed be the name of the Lord, Baruch Hashem Adonai, the person named Shem here becomes the ancestor of the Jewish people. And you see that word carried out historically. Absolutely. And people often ask where the word anti-Semite, you know, where does that come from? Uh, anti-Semite. And it comes, exactly like you said, it comes from shame, from right over here. And quite powerfully, we don't want to say, again, the this, this Semitic religions, and it's not just the Jewish people, but it's become known because we uh, ultimately continue the tradition of spirituality of what God wanted, and therefore it certainly has fallen under the category of the Jewish people. So now we look at Genesis chapter 10, and it's it's a list of family names because the world has to be repopulated after the flood. And so you've got the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in verse 1, and then there's a bunch of names listed. Verse 5 says, from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to family, according to nations. And so we have a division of the people into different groups. Verse 8 says, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So we have all these different names and the groups of people. And it says again in verse 20, they were separated according to their families and languages by their lands and their nations. And all of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood, it says at the end of chapter 10. And now we get to chapter 11, the famous story of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, it says, verse 1, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And Shinar, we believe, is located in the modern country of Iraq. It says they settled there and they said to one another in verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used bricks and for stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Let's build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so we have an example of the people saying, we want to be the most important. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. We want to make the rules. And if we don't make this tower and unite ourselves, what may happen to us is we may be scattered over the face of the earth. And we'll find out in a minute that's exactly what happened. But this is the Tower of Babel, the famous story that's a symbol of ego and pride and claiming to be God when we are not, we are simply his creation. It's hard when you read these verses to see exactly what they did wrong. And one of the commentaries that I saw focuses on something which, Pastor, you actually just said. And that is, they said in verse 4, we're going to make for ourselves a name. This is going to be about us. It's going to be about the greatness of man. It's going to be to show what we can accomplish. And there's nothing wrong with man accomplishing. And there should be progress and technology. And these are all wonderful tools that can be used ultimately for an aim of even greater spirituality in the world and greater uh, sanctification of God's name in the world. And that's not the direction they were going into. So it says in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, which... We often remind ourselves the 
Scripture uses language to help us get a sense of it in our mind. It's not as if God was unaware of what was going on. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. This is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the whole earth, They stopped building the city, therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And Rabbi, my friend, I have to bring to you something I brought to you in the last portion when it says, let us make man in our image, back in Genesis 1. Now it says, let us go down there and confuse their language. For we as Christians who believe in the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, we find that hint here with the plural pronouns that we see, and I know that's not a Jewish concept, that is a Christian concept, but I have to remind our Christian audience that's one of the supports we have for this theological belief, but what I'm asking of you is, why do you think God judged it so harshly that he said, I will share my glory with no one, a quote we've used before, and I'm going to confuse their language because if I don't, they're going to be so united in their rebellion. Do you think he's worried about going back to what happened before the flood? There's no doubt about it that uh, he saw the capacity for these people as they come together to possibly do terrible, terrible bad. And especially when it's a group, that's, that's something which happens also. Uh, you can have a group dynamic that could do very positive things, but you can have a group dynamic which can lead to terrible things. Here, this Unity was not a unity of let's come together and celebrate God. This is a unity of of let's come together and do all kinds of horrible things. And this is why it had to be dealt with as quickly as it was dealt with. And this portion continues through Genesis chapter 11, and our readers can see all of the names and the different family members that are listed and the length of their years, and they're all very important. And these are people that the Lord had Moses specifically write down. It's not a mistake. It's not unnecessary. These are all very important because God gave them to us to tell us the story of his people. But as we get to the end of chapter 11, it says, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. Verse 29, the name of Abram's wife was Sarah and Sarah was barren and she had no child. And this is going to become a very important part of the story going forward. And it's just introduced or teased to us at the end of chapter 11. We're introduced to the man named Abram, later to be known as Abraham. And so, Rabbi, as we come to the end of this week's Torah portion called Noach from Genesis 6 through Genesis 11, sum up the teachings for today's passage. First of all, you see uh, the bookends of the story where in the beginning of the story and the end of the story, you have the people rebelling against God. In the interim, you have God giving the people the opportunity for repentance and to come closer to him again. And you have God's salvation from the world. And you see God's finding ways to keep the world going. That's sort of the way I see this entire portion. In the beginning, it was via the flood. In the end, it's by separating them from one another. But the whole idea is God is there. It's for us to take the opportunity, and he's going to still be there and find ways to help us. But we have to take the steps uh, to be close to him. And that seems to be the overall theme, and that introduces us to the story of Abraham and ultimately the people of Israel. We will talk about the Abrahamic covenant and the calling of Abraham in next week's Torah portion. Rabbi, it's always a pleasure to study the Word of God with you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom to you and to all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. 
Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.